what do you expect? Lots of times our, uh, the, the reality doesn't meet our expectations. So you go out to a, to a place where you're expecting to have a nice meal and you're kind of uh, expecting to pay a good bit of money and then the food is just not that great and you kind of feel let down. But then if your expectation is to go out backpacking, you're not surprised when you're sleeping on the ground in a tent. Our expectations can make a, a big difference in how we experience things and how we face life and how we face reality. What do you expect about the Christian life? And sometimes people have wrong expectations. Sometimes rightly so because maybe they were misinformed. Sometimes wrongly so because they knew ahead of time and they, they, they just haven't been listening. But, but we have wrong expectations. We, we think that, that maybe life following Jesus Christ will be easier. At least it will be better. Or at least it won't be harder and then we'll have heaven in the end. So it, it'll, it'll be something that I add on to life and it won't really change life much. And then we'll have eternal life. And yeah, sometimes the way people approach it is that this is something that I will be adding on and it will not really change things too much. The reality is, is that the Bible never tells us that. In fact, the, the Bible warns us way ahead of time in many, many different ways that there can be all kinds of difficulties in life, all kinds of, of trials, all kinds of hardships, all kinds of obstacles. And following Jesus is not going to make that easier. In fact, following Jesus is sometimes going to bring greater suffering. It's going to, at the very least, require self-discipline and self-denial. He tells us to take up our crosses and follow him. Uh, that has been granted to us to both believe in him and to suffer with him. There are also wrong expectations about what we can expect to accomplish when it comes to other people and even with ourselves. Sometimes we think that we can change other people. If we just get the right technique and we get, just get something right and some way we say the right uh, set of words to them and that will be the thing that makes it click for them and, make, and changes them. Sometimes we even think that we can change ourselves. And yet... Every time we make a new plan and then it requires getting up at like 5 o'clock in the morning or earlier and then all of a sudden that doesn't happen, we wonder how, how much can we change ourselves? Sometimes our expectations are off. Sometimes our expectations are wrong. Well, the Bible teaches us what kinds of expectations to have. Expectations that we need to trust God, that it is God only who can change anyone. We have to expect that following him and trusting him and believing his promises is not, is not going to make life easier. In fact, might even come with some difficulties that we'd not anticipated, but maybe we should have. That's what I hope you'll see today, that you'll understand what to expect when it comes to following God, following God's promises, believing God's promises, and following Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be uh, continuing our study in the book of Exodus, starting in Exodus 4. And what we're going to see first is what to expect foretold. What to expect foretold. God is going to tell Moses what to expect ahead of time. So Exodus 4, starting in verse 18. What to expect foretold. What to expect foretold. We're going to pick up in Exodus 4, verse 18. This is what it says, Exodus 4.18. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. 
And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Moses has been called in the desert, in the wilderness, uh, to go back and to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, And in verse 18, he goes back to his father-in-law. He says, I want to go back to Egypt and see if my brothers are still alive. If you go back and you look at chapter 2, the last time that went, Moses went to see his brothers, meaning the Israelites, uh, he ended up killing the Egyptian and trying to free them. But then the, the Israelites rejected him as their judge and as their leader. And so he ran and he ran away. And God actually brings, uh, brings uh, the, the point to him. He says, you can go back because all the people who are trying to kill you, they're all gone. God doesn't have to say this. God doesn't have to do this. God doesn't have to explain to him. Uh, God has already told him what to do. He doesn't have to tell him that there's nobody going to try and kill you. Uh, but God does. This is a, a work of God's patience, his mercy. Uh, he's, he's encouraging Moses. I think one of the things to, uh, to look at when you're reading through the book of Genesis, and uh, you're looking at the way that God deals with Moses, or even the way that he deals uh, with all the, all the men in the Bible, is that God is overwhelmingly patient and kind and uh, works with their um, frail faith. And so he's doing the same thing with Moses. Moses takes his, his wife and his sons and he puts them on donkeys and he's leading them back and he's, he's on his way back. And notice at the end of verse 20 that he has the, the staff of God in his hand. Uh, this is just the shepherd's staff. This is the shepherd's staff that God had told Moses to throw down the ground. It became a snake, and then he picked it back up again. It became a staff again. But it's just an old shepherd's staff. And yet it is what God is going to use to display his power. Much the same way that God used Moses himself as an ordinary man to accomplish something extraordinary. Much the way that many of those who are used in the kingdom of God are just simply ordinary. Not spectacular in any way. And yet God uses them. He uses ordinary things. He uses the weak to shame the strong. And so we, we trust that God is using someone who's not in every case a, a really expected, uh, an expected rescuer or deliverer for the people of Israel. Somebody who has been in exile for 40 years, who doesn't really want to go, and yet God's going to use him. Now then, you look at verse 21. God tells Moses what to expect, tells him, go and, and you do all the miracles that I've given to you in your power. That's going to include those signs that we saw last week that you see in chapter 3. But it's also going to include all the things that God is going to do through Moses. That in each case, there are going to be, there are going to be 10 plagues and God is going to use Moses to speak about these. But ahead of time, he's going to often use Moses holding that staff, holding it out over the water, or holding it out uh, it, to, to do this or to do that or to strike the ground in some way. And God is going to use that to do these great miracles, these signs and wonders before Pharaoh, but look at the rest of verse 21. 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is the first time that God speaks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, something that's going to be spoken about many times through uh, the book of Exodus. God says, I'm going to do it. You know, lots of times we think that people might not say it this way, but really they are thinking that God is in control of all things except there is this one portion of me that has been carved out that God doesn't have any power over that. He doesn't have power over my heart. He doesn't have power over my will. He doesn't have the power to change or transform or shape my will. We have a kind of freedom, but our freedom is relative. God's freedom is absolute. There is no power that is outside of God's power. Think of the way that that God is pointing to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the face of the planet. He's the most powerful leader in the world, of the most powerful society in the world at the time. He is, to the Egyptians, a God. And God says, I control his heart. I make him hard or make him stubborn. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, always the objection to this is how can God hold us responsible? How can he find fault with us if he is the one who rules over our hearts or our wills? Paul actually answers that very question. If you'll flip over to Romans 9. Romans 9. Romans 9, we'll read verses 14 to 18 to start. This is actually where Moses is, I'm sorry, Paul is using the example of Pharaoh as his example of God hardening or making a heart stubborn. Look at Romans 9, verses 14 through 18, says, What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is saying there is, no, there is no human power, there is no human heart, there is no power in the human heart or in the human being that is outside of God's power. That salvation depends upon God's mercy and God's grace. God is the one who has absolute freedom. We might think about the kind of freedom that we have, which is true. But it is the kind of freedom that is relative to who we are. We are finite, limited human beings. God is infinite. There are no limitations. There is no little part of us where there is a sort of a, a little force field around our hearts or our wills that shuts God out. God is overall. And we could multiply passages of Scripture that make that very point and 
Paul is taking that very point and applying it directly to our human willing and our human exertion and saying, God does whatever he wants. God's freedom is perfect. God's freedom is unlimited. God's freedom is, is without boundary. God does whatever he wants. He hardens whom he wills. And he gives, shows mercy on whomever he wills. Now then, the next verses, with the next verses comes the ejection that everybody has. That I had when I first started to think about this. Look at verse 19. Read verses 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Look at verse 19. This is the objection. How can God find fault? How can God hold me responsible if I cannot resist his will? That's the objection. It's an objection that almost all of us initially have. And Paul answers it with another question. Who are you to speak back to God? He gives this analogy. Who are you to speak back to the potter? God is the maker. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the maker of all that is. He is the maker. We are creatures. Creatures creatures do not object to what the maker does. We do not have that right. God has the right to do whatever he will. We have no right to question that. Paul is, Paul is putting us over here and, and putting us in our place. Some people will say this makes us out to be puppets. Moses doesn't, uh, Paul doesn't compare us to puppets. He compares us to pots. He puts us in our place. Let, let me tell you who you are. You are a creature. You are made. God is the maker. Now then, doesn't this leave people... Sinners like us, doesn't it leave us in sort of a sense of despair that we can't save ourselves? Yes, it does. The, the reality is, is that, that we need more despair when it comes to saving ourselves. We need to despair of saving ourselves. Despair of saving ourselves is a necessary preliminary to finding deliverance through Jesus Christ. It is, it is recognizing our powerlessness to save. Without, we don't have the time today, but you could go through the whole book of Romans and recognize that Paul is gradually breaking down the human hope that we would save ourselves or in some way bring ourselves to God or bring ourselves to some kind of better life. It is God who has mercy. It depends upon God who has mercy. We need to despair of our own abilities and trust in God's abilities. And we need to recognize that God has the freedom to shape and transform and renew the human heart and the human will. That means with Pharaoh, he has the power for his own good purposes to harden or make stubborn Pharaoh's will. 
makes stubborn Pharaoh's heart. But that same power that hardens Pharaoh is our hope for the transformation of our own hearts. That any of us would be born again. Us who, we who are naturally born into this world with a, a bent towards sin. A nature that is sinful. If God is not, if we do not recognize God's power to transform the human heart and the human will, then all of us are lost. If God can't do that, we are, we are destined for destruction. Our hope is in the fact that God can change our hearts, that he can renew our wills, that he can open our eyes and awaken our understanding so that we would see the truth and believe. All of us here who are trusting in Jesus Christ, who do we give credit to for that? Don't all of us who are saved praise God for our salvation? And rightly so. He does it. From the inside out, from first to last, from beginning to end, God saves. Now then, going back and looking at Pharaoh again for just a minute, think about what God is saying to Moses. Moses, Pharaoh's the most powerful man on the earth. I know you don't want to go talk to him. think you've had some difficult conversations lately. You've, you've had nothing compared to what Moses is facing. You're going to go back and you're going to face Pharaoh. And I'm going to make him stubborn. I'm going, to, I'm going to do all these signs and wonders that ought to be enough to convince anybody to let the people go. By the time we are done looking at the ten plagues that God is going to bring on the nation of Egypt, you're going to be thinking what, a, what an ignoramus Pharaoh is. Like, why can't you get it? But God is saying to Moses, you're going to go up against this guy, and I want you to understand, I control him. Egypt thinks he's a god. He's not a god. I control him. I cause. God said in chapter 3, I am. I am the uncaused one. I am the one who creates, and I have power over Pharaoh. I'm going back to Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23 are almost as, as blunt. I want you to tell Pharaoh, I want you to tell him, Israel is my firstborn son. The firstborn son in the ancient world was the one who was going to be the heir. He was the, the light of the father. He was the, he was the one that everything was going to be passed on to. It was the, he was the one who was, had this special place of affection and, and power and authority in the household. He says about Israel, this is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Pharaoh has been enslaving the Israelites. He has been forcing them to serve him as if he were a god. And God is saying, you let them go so that they may serve me. They will serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. There's justice in the Passover. This Pharaoh who tried to wipe out Israel, tries to enslave Israel, enslaves Israel, and tries to increase their burdens and destroy them and, and kill them and oppress them and afflict them. 
forcing them to serve him. If you don't let my firstborn son go, then I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh, do you think that you have the power to protect even your very own household? You think you, you, think you can protect Egypt? You can't protect your even, even your own house. I can reach into your, the bedroom in your firstborn son's, in your house, in your firstborn son's room, and I can touch him. Let my people go. Let my firstborn son go. I mean, take out the lens just a little bit as well and see that God talks about other people in the Bible being his son. So based upon, say, for instance, Luke 3, Adam was called a son of God. That is, he's, he is supposed to be one who represents God in the world. God created Adam in his own image so that he would represent God in the world, that he would be a kind of priestly figure in the world. Same thing with Israel. Israel is called God's firstborn son. The kings of Israel are later on called God's uh, son. They're supposed to represent God in the world. Israel is later on called a, a kingdom and a priest, or a kingdom of priests. They are supposed to represent God in the world. And yet where Adam failed, Adam sinned, Adam disobeyed God's word, and was exiled from the garden. Israel disobeyed God's word and was forced out of the land. The kings of Israel disobeyed God's word and led the people into exile. Jesus Christ went into the wilderness and he obeyed God's word. Jesus Christ came into the wilderness of this world and he obeyed God's word perfectly. The kings of, of Israel led God's people into idolatry, what Paul called the worship of demons. And yet when Satan right there offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus refused to worship Satan. In all the ways that Adam failed, in all the ways that Israel failed, Jesus Christ has obeyed for us. He is the one who obeys on our behalf so that if we believe in him, if we trust in him, we'll be saved. We'll receive righteousness and life in his name. We'll have eternal life through him. You see the, the things that are coming. You see the things that are foretold. God says, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to make his will stubborn. These are the things I'm going to do. You're going to go in there. You're going you're to face Pharaoh. You're going to do these wonders. Now let's see what happens. Next part, we see what to expect fulfilled. We see that what God has said happens. What to expect fulfilled. Look at verses 24, starting verse 24. We'll read through the end of chapter 4. We'll take this next longer segment in, in, in section in three segments. Look at verse 24. It says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Verse 27. It says, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. 
Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and, and worshiped. It's a strange couple of verses, verses 24 and 25. Uh, there are a lot of details that are, that are disputed and maybe difficult to work out, but the, the overall point is not that hard, in fact. Uh, Moses has left Egypt. He was raised as an Egyptian. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years. Whereas in chapter 2, he had in some sense identified with God's people. There's something that he has not been doing. There's something he didn't keep for perhaps for himself, uh, probably most obviously for his son. It was the circumcision. It was the rite of circumcision. Back in Genesis 17, God told Abraham, he said, uh, let every son, let every male uh, in your household be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, as a sign of the promise that I've made to you. If anyone will not be circumcised, let him be cut off from the people. Well, what happened to Moses? What almost happened to Moses? We might even think that this is Moses' firstborn son. If he's not, if he's not identifying with God's people, if he's not obeying God, if he's not keeping this right, then God is going to cut him off. Except for the fact that Zipporah did some emergency surgery right there in the wilderness with a flint knife. Moses would be cut off from the people. Sometimes when we read the New Testament, we read about, uh, we read about circumcision. Sometimes we kind of wonder, like, what's, what's, the, what's the big deal in the Old Testament? Why, why do the apostles even have such a hard time convincing Jewish believers that circumcision is no longer required? Because even Moses almost got cut off because he wasn't circumcised. This is a serious matter. Now then, but what about the, what the apostles say? They say that circumcision is not necessary. At least not circumcision in the body. You know what they say is the real, uh, the real issue? Say that it's about circumcision of the heart. Look at Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Romans 2, 28 and 29. Look at Philippians 3, 3. What matters is not circumcision, but whether or not you have a new heart. You know what identifies you as one of God's people? It's whether or not you've been born again. Whether or not you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether or not you are ready to worship the Lord. Whether or not you are ready to, to walk by the Spirit. That's what identifies you as a part of the people of God. And you know what? If we have to ask about ourselves, am I born again? We've talked a lot about God's power over the human heart or over the human will. Well, what God says in the Old Testament and what he enacts in the New Testament is that he takes people's stony hearts out and he gives them new hearts. Or the way Jeremiah puts it is he takes his law and he doesn't write it on tablets of stone. He writes it on human hearts so that they are ready to obey God from the heart. That's what matters. Do you trust Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you obey Jesus Christ? That's what identifies you as one of God's people. You know, in the Old Testament, it was circumcision for everybody from, from their birth. In the Old Testament, though, it's about being born into God's people as a, as a kind of template or a, a way that this happens, a, a symbol of being a part of the people of God or a pattern of being a part of the people of God. 
But in the new covenant, all know God. All have new hearts. All recognize Jesus Christ. All call him Lord. In the next section, finally, uh, Moses. I already kind of see that things are not uh, things are not going the way that Moses expected, but he goes out and he meets Aaron in the wilderness and he shows Aaron every, every, everything and he, and he talks to Aaron and he tells every, uh, Aaron everything and, and everybody's excited and everybody's happy and then they go before the elders of Israel and they, they show the elders of Israel all the signs and, and the wonders and the, the things that God has done and they tell Israel, hey, we're, we're here, we've been sent by the Lord, we've been sent by the I am, watch this, watch this staff turn into a snake, watch me turn my hand into a leprosy, maybe I'll throw some water on the ground, it'll turn into blood let me show you all these things and everybody is excited and everybody believes this is this is the the way that a lot of times the gospel which i think is not really the gospel but the way that gospel the gospel is presented to people trust in jesus christ and things will go better for you Trust in Jesus Christ and, and life, life will be easier. Might even be more than that. Might even say things like, trust in Jesus Christ and you'll be healed. Or trust in Jesus Christ and your diseases will go away right away. Trust in Jesus Christ and you'll, you'll, you'll make more money. And that's our expectation. I, I, think, I think that the, the, the Israelites here are hearing all this and they're thinking... Well, I like this. Who doesn't want their life to go better? Who doesn't want to get released from slavery? Who doesn't want to do this? Why would I not believe this? And now let's see what happens. Let's read chapter 5. Look at Exodus 5. We'll read the whole chapter here. The, 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 the narrative starts to pick up a lot. Starting with verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, whatever you can find, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work. Your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had sent over them were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Uh, yet they say to, to us, 
Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. But you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to him, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God told Moses, go in and speak to Pharaoh. And so he goes in and speaks to Pharaoh. He says, let us, let us go. We need to go hold a feast to our God. The God of, of Israel has told us to go out and hold a feast to him and to go out and worship him. We need to go a, a three days journey. It's more about the length of the journey. They're not coming back. They're going the length that it takes to get a three days journey out of Egypt. Like, we're not staying. We're, we're going out. We need to sacrifice our God. We need to worship our God. We need to serve our God. We need to hold, hold a feast in honor of our God. And look at what Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord? I don't know who the Lord is. And I'm not going to let the people go. And I'm not going to obey him. Remember that just previously in chapter 3... God had revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me. The name Yahweh, or sometimes we, we uh, older translations will say Jehovah. That name comes from the, the word for to be. That is, the, this is the God who is, but God reveals his name. And then Pharaoh says, I don't know that name. Well, guess what? Before it's all over... Pharaoh's going to know that name. He will know. You see God's plan working itself out. You've got a great man God who says he doesn't know who the Lord is. And God says, I'm going to make his will stubborn so that I will make my name known throughout the whole world. All the nations will know who the Lord is. They go in, try and convince it. I even think the way it's repeated there, you kind of see that they are trying to persuade him. They're trying to convince him to let the people go. Uh, we, are, we are going to, uh, God is going to come and, and bring uh, pestilence on us or, or plagues on us or death on us or the sword on us. Please let us go. Instead, Pharaoh says the, to his taskmasters and his workers, he says, they're idle. They're lazy. They're lazy. Go and make them work harder. Go take away their straw. The, the way you make bricks is you kind of get the straw. The straw holds the mud together while it bakes in the sun. Uh, that would be a really important way to kind of get together. Well, let them go get their own straw. We're not going to provide straw for them anymore. They have to go in and, and cut the last bits of stubble out of the field to kind of hold these bricks together. They're lazy. We make them work harder. They'll stop listening to these lying words. That's what Pharaoh says. And even then, the taskmasters go out, and you kind of, there's a, the possibility this even plays out over several months. The time it takes for the Israelites to recognize they're not going to be able to keep up. Uh, time for the Israelites to appeal to Pharaoh. Well, each day, the taskmasters, who are probably Egyptians, they go out and they, they force the Hebrew, probably Hebrew, foreman to 
You know, get the people organized. Get them, you, you will not make fewer bricks. You must meet your quota. And then when they don't make it, they get beaten. The foremen get beaten. And then they appeal to Pharaoh and they say, why, why are you doing this? It's, it's your people's fault. They're not giving a straw anymore. And Pharaoh says, you're idle, you're idle. You're lazy, lazy, lazy. I'm going to teach you not to ask to go out and serve your God anymore. You will meet your quota. You will make your bricks. And then they come out. You can't imagine Moses and Pharaoh standing out there waiting for them. Waiting for them to come out. And when they come out, they say, the Lord deal with you. You said you came in the Lord's name, bringing the Lord's message. And look, you've now, you've now given it into Pharaoh's hand to kill us. He is going to wear us down and destroy us if it keeps on like this. What does Pharaoh do? He turns to God. Why, why did you send me? Why have you done evil to this people? Why, why did you send me? I didn't even want to come. I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name. He has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Like, like not one tiny bit. You, like, you didn't, you didn't get them any relief whatsoever. Things have only gotten worse. The Israelites expected things to get better right away. Moses at least expected things that, maybe he at least expected they wouldn't get any worse. Did he have any right to expect that? When God had said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In chapter 3, he said, Pharaoh will only let the people go after a mighty hand compels them. What did you expect? What do we expect? Some of us have had wrong expectations. Some of us know better. And yet, always when we face some kind of difficulty or trial or, or even irritation, all of a sudden we act surprised. Like, like we didn't know we were living in a fallen world. Like we didn't know that there would be difficulty. We didn't know there would be suffering. We didn't know that following Jesus would be this hard. We thought, we thought when he said, you know, hate your father and mother or hate your own life or take up your cross and follow me, that was just, that was hyperbole, you know, we, we knew it would be like, kind of like boot camp, but you kind of get through and then it's easier. No, that's, that's not the expectation. The expectation is that, that we live in a world that's fallen, where, where suffering is, is, is common to humanity. And that's not going to go away until the earth is remade, until the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus told us that following him far from making it easier, often makes it harder. He tells us, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer with him. He tells us to take up our cross, to renounce our lives, to deny ourselves. What right do we, do we expect to have a secure, comfortable life in this age? We have no reason to expect that. The Bible, the scriptures have given us no reason to think that. Peter, Peter has this little phrase that he says in 1 Peter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you. 
And yet what happens every time? We're surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be nearsighted. Don't see just what today has. Don't just see what the near future has. Don't even see what the near future of your life has. Don't be nearsighted. Don't be myopic. Look to the future. Look to eternal life. Look to the glory that is ours. Look to what God has promised. He told us it would be hard. We already know that God's right. It is hard. He also says that we will have eternal life, that he will sustain us, that he will give us all the sweetness of life. For everyone who thirsts, there is water for life. He provides for us. He intends to heal all our wounds, to take away all our diseases, to take away all of our tears. Not now. Don't be nearsighted. Look to the future. Look to eternal life. Look to all that God has promised. Look at one more verse. Look in chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now you're ready. Now you're ready to see God deliver. Now you will understand. This is sort of the middle of this larger part. And this is where we're going to stop today. Where Moses goes to Pharaoh and does exactly what God told him to do. And then, then things get worse. Sometimes that's how our days end. And yet our hope is not for today. It is not for this life. It is for the resurrected life, eternal life with Jesus Christ. The same one who said that we must suffer with him is the one who suffered for us. Jesus died in our place. So that the suffering of God's condemnation, the suffering of judgment would not fall on us. Instead it fell on him. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us with him all things? We know that we have, have all things. All things are already our inheritance. We simply await the time when we come into it. When we leave, at, leave the, the wilderness and come into the promised land. When we leave this life and come into the age to come. We will live forever with Jesus Christ. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. No more slavery, no more affliction, no more oppression. Life eternal. Let's look up to the coming of Jesus. Let's look up for eternal life. We know that we expect hard times here. But let us also expect that Jesus Christ will come for us. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Grant that we would, uh, by faith, endure. We endure every uh, trial, every irritant, every form of persecution and suffering and every difficulty. And we would count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. 
knowing that you are, you are making us steadfast, you are perfecting our faith, you are completing our faith, you are maturing our faith, you are making us ready for the coming of Jesus Christ, you are making us ready to meet him, you are sanctifying us, you are transforming us, you are shaping us, you are the God of perfect freedom. Please shape our wills, shape our hearts so that we love you and obey you, seek you, trust in you. That even as our outer man is wasting away, that our inner man is being renewed every day. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.